All right, so we're gonna get started. We're getting started. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's let's talk about this. Okay, welcome everybody to a new episode of the Redwood Podcast. I'm Gabo Mercia. I'm joined, uh, as always, by Davis Allen. How's it going? And John Flores. Hey, how's everybody going? Uh, so today we're going to be talking about a new film that came out on HBO Max, at least that's where I watched it, called Judas and the Black Messiah. And uh, yeah, I'm excited to see this ever since it was announced about a year ago. And I'm excited to talk about it with you guys. So Davis, what, what did you think about this? What I was struck by as I finished watching it is that in a way, I wish this movie had been a documentary. And I'm sure that a lot of people who are familiar with Fred Hampton already also wish this had been a documentary, <laughs> wish that they had put these kinds of resources into telling the real story of him in that particular way. But the reality is, would it have included all of these big names and been a big drop on HBO Max had it been a documentary about Fred Hampton? Obviously not. And so to me, that's why it's ultimately super successful. Whether or not it's the story that everybody wanted, I think it's a pretty radical story. I think you come away from that movie with a pretty good understanding of who Fred Hampton was and why his story is so important. And for that, I, I, I think it's super valuable, whatever its limitations. Yeah, it's interesting because we didn't talk about this beforehand, but I think I'm in basically the exact same place as you, Davis, because I think the story is so important, not just because of what you said about uh, learning about Fred Hampton, but I think you come away from this movie with a pretty good idea of how the U.S. government represses social movements. I think it's important that you have these scenes like, for example, J. Edgar Hoover making cal a calculation that probably did really take place, which is Fred Hampton can't go to jail. Jail doesn't work for us anymore. The Black revolutionary leaders who are going there are getting too famous and too much attention is being drawn by them going to jail. So not only are we getting a much needed portrayal of such an important historical figure as Fred Hampton and the Black Panther Party as a whole in Chicago, but I think we're also getting a sorely needed portrayal of the U.S. government, the FBI specifically, during really important time in our country's history in the uh, 1960s and 70s. So it sounds like Davis and I are <laughs> looking at this in a similar way. John, why don't you come in and just totally... Uh... Disagree? Yeah, disagree. <laughs> no, I, I actually really like the film. And I think we're going to talk about why we each liked it and what it is we saw that was limiting in the film throughout the conversation. But I really liked the film. I thought it was a very powerful narrative. I thought it was emotional. I thought it showcased aspects of Fred Hampton's life very well. It dramatized a lot of events that I've read about and that I've seen through documentaries like Eyes on the Prize, which by the way, that's an incredible series, which if our listeners have never seen that. It's an incredible series that chronicles many aspects of the civil rights movement and does so really well. I think what I liked most about the movie 
is that it actually tackles a strategic question that I find is currently being debated in the left, which is to what degree should social justice, radical progressive movements reach out to other movements? Because one of the themes that really stuck with me throughout the film that I was really impressed by was the way the film chose to be true in depicting Fred Hampton as somebody who really believed in solidarity. And the concept of solidarity is a tactical, strategic concept and I'm not sure if everybody on the left agrees with the concept of solidarity. If I put this another way, I often ask, if you support a social justice movement, do they place an emphasis on solidarity? Is solidarity an important concept for them? And it was clearly a very important concept, a strategic position, an ethical, moral position for Fred Hampton. We saw him reaching out to a wide range of organizations. For example, when he reaches out to the Young Patriots, we see that the young patriots are still using the Confederate flag. And we see the way the film to show us that Black Panthers engage the young patriots about using that flag. So what I see there is an exchange where these two groups are learning from each other. And the reason I'm, I'm talking about this is because in what is sometimes referred to as quote unquote cancel culture, which is itself a very problematic term, there seems to be this debate that we on the left shouldn't be reaching out to people on the right. We shouldn't be having deep conversations with them because by doing so, we are platforming them. We're giving them power. We're giving them a voice. And I think when you think in those thoughts, you're not gonna win people over to a better world. Marx emphasizes we have a world to win. And how can we win that world if we're not willing to reach out to people and have deep conversations with them, meeting them where they are, and then trying to, to teach them something. And they may teach us something in that process, things that we didn't know. And so what I saw in this film was Fred Hampton really believes in solidarity. And as soon as I saw that, I thought to myself, the U.S. government is going to kill him. I knew where this ended. I knew that the U.S. government was going to kill right. him. But I thought, the day you start uniting poor, black, white, Latinos together, now you are an enemy of the U.S. state. I, and I think what, what you're saying, John, about how Fred Hampton at his core was someone who believed in solidarity and believed in reaching out is that we think of, or a lot of us, myself included, think of Fred Hampton as this messiah almost, like this really gifted, once-in-a-lifetime person that comes along. And what I was thinking about was watching this movie is that when you're somebody whose core belief is that we have to reach out to people, you're going to spend a lot of time talking to people, trying to push them. And as you do that, you're going to get better and better at pushing people and winning people over. It's like any, anything that you practice at and do it over and over again. And I think that's something really important for us to keep in mind because then we don't have to rely on, oh, we're just waiting for the next Fred Hampton to be born and to come along. Anybody can be the next Fred Hampton. Because I always think as I was watching this, Fred Hampton probably became Fred Hampton as a result of his way of organizing rather than just being this special talent at, at public speaking. I loved the part where he was listening to the Malcolm X speeches. Yeah. <laughs> and speaking along with them. You know, I, I thought that was a really great moment because it it was a really good, if subtle, reminder that he's not somebody who was just out of the womb, right. this figure that we we imagine, 
but rather someone who has spent a lot of time thinking about how best to reach out to other people, right? Not just assuming that like, that that's just going to happen or counting on someone else to do it, but instead genuinely investing in the craft. Yeah. Yeah. Seeing it as a craft. Another thing the movie did really well is watching him reach out with these groups. It wasn't like he just stepped out and because he was a good speaker, they just immediately embraced him. All of these groups that he encountered were very skeptical of what he was doing. But slowly over time and through action, the Black Panther Party won all of these groups over and, and did form this really unique coalition of people. You can say that one thing that limits this film is the focus on the Judas rather than Black Messiah, because I think we want to learn more about Fred Hampton than we do Wild Bill. <laughs> but it starts off with him just trying to survive, trying to make ends meet by stealing a car. We get a complex portrayal of Wild Bill in the sense that his motivations for being there are mixed. It's not just a matter of encountering racism in his personal life. It's not just a matter of wanting to see a better world. In the beginning, it's, I just need to not go to jail. And he needs to not go to jail because of the socioeconomic status that he found himself in. So I think we do get a portrayal of race and class in this country that is more nuanced and is more sophisticated than your typical Hollywood portrayal. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. This has got to be the best, best that I've ever encountered, for sure. Before I got to college, I had no sense of any of the material that was covered in, in this movie. Tons of people watching this will come into it with very little sense of what the Black Panthers actually stood for. It's just telling people what actually happened. But I still think illustrating that to people who weren't familiar is there's something really great about that in and of itself. So what do you all think? Do you want to spend some time talking about Lakeith Stanfield's portrayal of William O'Neill? Let's keep going with, with him, because I think that is ultimately the main character of the film. Well, I have a few things to say about William O'Neill and the way he's depicted. I haven't read anything about the film because I wanted to draw my own conclusions from it. But what I see is they depict him as this tortured man for serving as an FBI informant. And if there are criticisms about that, I'm not sure why we would criticize that. As in, it's clear that he is in this position, as you described earlier, Gabe, and where he's going to go to jail. And this FBI agent tells him, I can keep you out. I just need you to do these things for me. And then those things just keep getting more and more consequential as time goes on. And it's a slippery slope. You've made a deal with the devil and they're going to want more and more and more and more from you. And I, I could feel that throughout the film, that he is conflicted and emotionally torn up about the things he's doing. And yet he's still doing them because he's in this position. The movie ends with an interview of the real Bill O'Neill and his defense of of his actions is that he was there he did the work you weren't there all you can do is sit there and, and judge me i thought that was interesting because it seemed like he was positioning himself as someone who was struggling against the conditions he was born into almost as if for him that just trying to survive and get by in those circumstances in that time was a fight and a struggle in and of itself. And I, I thought that was interesting because I tend to silo struggle and resistance to political, social, economic conditions 
to like the political realm, to like organizing activism and that kind and that kind of thing. And it seemed like his defense of himself really was positioning it as as a broader dynamic. Yeah, I, I didn't really know how to make sense of him saying that he was part of this struggle. I think the main takeaway for his role in the film, the reason that he is so central a figure, is exactly that point. His inclusion, it adds another layer to the horror of the story. The fact that so much of this system that we are working against is set up to position us against each other instead of allowing us to to unite against oppression. Fred Hampton's whole thing is solidarity, like John was talking about. And the reality is that almost all of the forces working against us work primarily by denying us the capacity to build solidarity. It's hard to determine how much to extrapolate from his facial gestures or his body language because I find sometimes people read a lot into that sort of thing and they can be often wrong. But we also know that he killed himself. So this is somebody who ended up committing suicide. It said like the day, the day after the documentary was released. So he's clearly experienced a lot of this in a very traumatic way. And how he's trying to make sense of his role is obviously very complex. And it is a complex role because as much as we emphasize the sadness of it, it was also incredibly damaging. He did directly contribute to the assassination of Fred Hampton. And he did have choices. He could have fled. He could have just escaped. He could have gone to jail. He could have done a lot of things. And instead, he participated in killing Fred Hampton. So it's very tragic, but it also shows you how we can make very harmful and damaging decisions to other people when we're placed in such a pressure cooker-like situation. And it's not just... Bill O'Neill, I think the movie really excels in showing the real humanity of how individuals have to struggle who are involved in these kinds of movements. Because I think we see that with Fred too, and with his relationship with his girlfriend, with his wife, because ultimately he had other courses of action that he could take that didn't end with him leaving behind his family. Not saying anything he did was wrong. I'm just saying that I thought it was powerful to see that internal struggle that I'm sure he dealt with and that his partner dealt with of, I understand that you're committed to the movement and that is your number one priority, but you also have to have other priorities as well. It's really sad to think about what might he have given us, you know, if he had successfully fled to Algeria or something, what might he have done? I think the theme that Gabe brought up is something I wanted us to talk about, which is Fred Hampton's relationship with Deborah Johnson, his partner in the film, played by Dominique Fishback. I think Fishback does an incredible job depicting the complex emotions in being with somebody who is willing to die for justice. Most of us are never in that kind of situation. And so it's hard to even grapple with that reality because what the film shows me is that Hampton is so committed to the cause, so committed to creating a more just world that he is pushing the envelope constantly, which is leading him to be surveilled and sabotaged and attacked by the police and the FBI and is ultimately leading towards an execution. And on some level, he understands this and she understands this. And yet she's falling in love with him knowing she's falling in love with somebody who is forever going to be a target of the FBI and of the U.S. state. As I watched the scenes between them, I kept thinking of other revolutionaries who have chosen to dedicate their lives to justice. And I was actually starting to think about Che Guevara and his life. 
at my old university, there was a professor of European history who had an image of Che depicted like a rodent. And he had this on his office door. So that when you would walk past his office, you would see an animalized, rodentized depiction of Che Guevara. And he put this up there with pride. And then I would hear the conversation students would have about Che. They would talk about how he was a bad father because he was never around. They would talk about how his relationship with his partner was not healthy. They would criticize him in so many ways. And I remember once just saying to this group of students, you seem to have no sense of what it means to know you're giving up your middle-class way of life and truly dedicating yourself to revolutionary activity. I'm sorry, but being an intellectual, and especially an intellectual in higher ed, is not equivalent to being a revolutionary. It's just not. If you're going to continue to be able to play games and go to movie theaters and buy your clothes and go to restaurants and go to bars, that's not the same as leading a guerrilla movement to try to overthrow a dictatorship. They're not equivalent. And when you're that dedicated to destroying a dictatorship, that you're putting your life on the line that way, yes, your personal life is going to suffer. Your parenting is going to suffer. Your personal relationships are going to suffer. Your own mental health is going to suffer because you're putting it all on the line in the way very, very few people actually do. And what I saw was Fred Hampton was saying, I'm putting everything on the line, everything. And the depiction of him doing that by Daniel Kaluuya was powerful. I could feel Hampton just saying, everything will be on the line with me. That is who I am. I'm going to be true to who I am. And that's an incredibly difficult road to walk. Most people can't do that. And that's what one of the things I think that makes him so unique. The other thing I'm thinking about is just how powerful that poem scene was. I don't know about you guys, but I think that's what really sold me on this film. On a cinematic level, there are moments from movies that really stick with you. I'm a big Lord of the Rings trilogy fan. And when Pippin is singing as the Gondor Knights charge to their due, this is irrelevant to this episode. That That's one of like my top movie moments. And, and the scene where she's reading that poem and we're seeing scenes of struggle in Chicago, that slides right in there in those, in those top cinematic moments for me. It was very powerful. And it really speaks to the director, Shaka King's talents. Yeah. So what did you all think of Roy Mitchell, who's played by Jesse Plemons? Because I have a lot to say about that FBI agent. I'm curious what you all He's thought. He's a real piece of shit. What scene that stuck out for me with that character is the scene where I believe it's J. Edgar Hoover or somebody else high up at the FBI asks him, what will you do when your daughter brings home a black man? I think that stuck out to me because it did almost feel up into that point that we weren't seeing a whole lot of the virulent racism that was being expressed during this time. It was framing it more in a you know, tyrannical government versus resistance movement type lens, I guess in a more economic. And I thought that scene did a good job of showing us how, it, how it's both, how the people in the highest levels of government are interested in preserving the status quo. And there's people carrying that, the work necessary to do that out who have fine ideas, who support the civil rights movement. Allegedly, we don't know if he actually did. We don't know if Mitchell actually does. But then there are plenty of powerful people who are just straight up bigots. And I I don't think the bigotry of powerful people in our society should be underplayed. And I think Shaka depicted it well, and the actors in that scene depicted it well. What I was gonna say about Roy Mitchell 
what I saw was somebody who didn't actually appreciate the explicit racism of J. Edgar Hoover in that scene, mm -hmm. who doesn't want to accept explicit racism. What I saw was someone who believes that the United States is a nation of laws and that the Black Panthers are lawbreakers and they're engaging in tactics that Mitchell finds wrong. The same as the Ku Klux Klan. So for him, they're the same. And the film was Mitchell feeling uncomfortable with some of the illegal actions that the FBI was taking. And he wanted to do something about it, but he's not doing anything about it. And this is where I think another theme that I've talked about comes into play, which is the theme of choice. So on the one hand, King shows us that Mitchell is conflicted about explicit racism and illegal FBI actions. On the other hand, Mitchell doesn't quit the FBI. Mitchell doesn't call up his informer, O'Neill, and say, you know, the FBI now is resorting to a lot of tactics that I cannot support anymore. I think you should just flee. After all, there's no record of you being my informant. Right. And then he quits. Then he goes and he sells shoes. I don't know. He does whatever he needs to do, but he does not continue to work within an immoral institution that is engaging in illegal and racist acts. You know, one of the things that we hear the Panthers say in this movie is that their job is to heighten the contradictions, to make those contradictions more apparent to people and make it harder to hide from them. And I think that one of the things that makes this movie so good is that that's exactly what the film does, right? The film heightens these contradictions. It shows that you can't be someone who is just punching in and punching out. <laughs> yeah. You, you can't be free of any moral obligation to do any more than that. Nobody is capable of threading that needle. The contradiction of America is you can't have it both ways. Another interesting aspect of that part of the film that you mentioned, John, is that we learn how another FBI informant committed murder. And that made me think about how so often we hear criticisms of left, revolutionary, socialist, nationalist movements, how criminal they were. I'm sure those same students you mentioned also said Che was a butcher who murdered hundreds of people. And what's really tough is that these movements become such targets with state repression that they end up being infiltrated and people associated with them end up committing really awful things. And I'm, and I'm sure people who didn't infiltrate also commit awful things. I, I don't want to totally absolve anyone of anything, but it definitely made me think about how the state in this case, use an informant to get the Black Panther to commit a crime that it will then probably be criticized for and condemned for. Because, you know, there's someone out there whose son was murdered by a Black Panther. And, and that is something that makes it hard for people to support you. And it's why governments do it and why it's so hard for this kind of revolutionary change to take place. It's really disturbing to see the way the U.S. state is operating in this film which is a point that you talked about earlier, Gabe, because I've already mentioned Che Guevara, so we're already going to lose some subscribers because of that. And now I thought I would double down on it and say that what I see in this film, sadly, how I see the U.S. state engaging the Black Panthers is the way the U.S. state engages leftist governments throughout Latin America. Everything they're doing here, that is inserting agents early on that not only are, act as informants, but act as so-called agent provocateurs that engage in theatrical acts of violence that then paint that organization or movement in a negative light in the international presses, putting extreme pressure on different segments of the movement at the same time 
to try to create internal paranoia. The things that I see them doing here are so many of the things that you can read about that we did in Guatemala in the 50s, that we've done in South America in the 70s, that we do in the present. I mean, that was pretty much the explicit purpose of COINTELPRO, right? It's literally counterintelligence implementing those same practices at home. Well, and I think the movie alludes to it directly at times when we're seeing the FBI communicate with the CIA. I think a line is, oh, this was given to us courtesy of our friends at the CIA. So there is that kind of implied cooperation or, or sharing of tactics as you're seeing the communication between the people who are carrying out this strategy of oppression domestically with the people who are carrying out these things abroad. And speaking of the point of COINTELPRO, if you read about its origins, its history, this is a FBI initiative that derives from a fear that communists will link up with the African-American freedom struggle. And so this is one of the reasons that Fred Hampton was such a threat which is something we really do need to emphasize here in this conversation, which is that he's embracing socialism. He's embracing an anti-capitalist ideology. If you fight racism and you demand inclusion, the state may still kill you, but the capitalist state can work with you. There's room to work with you if your demand is inclusion. If your demand is revolutionizing the status quo, revolutionizing the for-profit system, the commodification of all goods and services, the exploitation of labor that the system depends on, you are an enemy of the capitalist state. There is no incorporating someone like that. That's a revolutionary. Since this movie came out, Cory Booker posted a Fred Hampton quote, and he left out the end of the <laughs> quote that says, not black capitalism, yeah. but socialism. You know, he, he left that part of it out. And I think that's really telling. And I think you're right, John. It's really important that we're very explicit about the fact that he's not just a, a radical in the most vague sense. He's a radical in a very explicit sense. He sees the solution as the abolition of capitalism. I think what you guys are talking about is, for me, why I'm having a very hard time imagining why someone would decide to be dismissive of this film coming from the left because of, of any perceived injustice and portrayals or too much focus on Bill O'Neill. I, I also haven't read anything, um, any critiques of it, but to me, it seems that this film was made and we're going to have people like Cory Brooker trying to capture the energy of it and use it for his political ends, which obviously does not include socialism. It's capitalism. That's where he left that part of the quote out. Or we can do everything we can to promote our interpretation of the movie. And it feels like if we're to sit here and say, oh, well, they didn't talk about Fred's Leninist influences enough. So this movie isn't, is no good. Or I, I, I can't really think of what exactly your critiques will be. We're kind of abdicating that and just allowing the center the liberals to promote their own narrative. Whereas I think, you know, this is a really cool opportunity to introduce a lot more people to the idea of, of socialism that Fred Hampton himself promoted, the legacy of Fred Hampton that we want to see remembered, not the legacy of Fred Hampton that the ruling class wants to be remembered. Because as we know, everybody <laughs> that they kill, they end up trying to give federal holidays to and, and totally twist what that person was about. Well, Gabe, you know, you opened up an interesting 
and provocative question, which is, is there a left criticism of this film? Can we offer a left criticism? And I think we can. I can think of a number of criticisms. Yeah. For example, the film is very individual focused and we can say, well, that's okay, but this is a standard narrative in American films to reduce social movements to individuals, to assign individuals an incredible amount of weight in the success or failure of a movement. And that is a way of downplaying the significant role of the collective in achieving all important social gains in US history. So we could argue that this film falls into that category to some extent. We can also talk about the fact that there is no self-criticism of the Panthers in this film. And I find just as solidarity is something that most social justice movements in our present don't embrace explicitly into their platforms, self-criticism is not something that most social justice movements embrace into their platforms. There's a long history of socialists and communists emphasizing how important it is to be self-critical, to think about what you could do differently. What could you do better? Where did you go wrong? What I don't see in this film is any kind of criticism of the Black Panthers or of Fred Hampton. But based on your commentary right now, I think what's so important about the film is that it's introducing a lot of people to Fred Hampton and to the idea of socialism. And it's introducing people to the idea that struggles against racism have often been directly connected to struggles against capitalism. And in that sense, I think the film is succeeding at doing something really incredible that most mainstream films don't do. And just to add on to it, it's it's introducing those people uh, to those ideas on a platform which is basically designed to keep people from being introduced to those ideas. The people like Shaka King, Ryan Coogler, I'm sure they found out the hard way, more, more so than we could ever really know just how difficult it is to produce a film about this topic, you know, major blockbuster in Hollywood. And they were, they were able to do it. And my assessment is they were able to do it without major flaws, which is, I think what I was, I mean, I think I, I look at anything with a critical lens. So I'm going to, if there is a major flaw, like that uh, we're going to, we're going to talk about it. Um, but I think it's an accomplishment to, to get this through those filters that have only been strengthened over, over the years. We want to talk about uh, what we're up to. <laughs> oh boy. So Gabe, besides yeah. watching this, what have you been, uh, what have you been up to? A very long time ago, I was a young college student in John's class, maybe six years ago, and I was just getting introduced to socialism, communism, radical ideas. I think I've always, just from my upbringing, been leftist, but I was really interrogating these ideas. And I came across a rapper on YouTube called Pablo Hassel, who had these really cool songs where he's saying like, yeah, I'm a Marxist because I hate the bourgeoisie. (laughs) That's like wasn't very good rap, but that's the the energy and the the content I w- I was really digging at the time, and I hadn't really thought about him since. And now, so it was like this cool flashback moment when he became front and center to headlines here in Spain when he was arrested this past week. So I forgive me for dating the podcast here, guys, but it's just what's going on. So yeah, he was, he criticized the monarchy and was accused of by doing that and saying terrorism and he was arrested. And there've been protests 
right here where I live every night for like a week now. So I, I was able to go to one and it was cool. People flying red flags, all, all the kind of good things you see at a, at a proper leftist protest. So that, that was a fun experience. So I guess my, mine is in a pretty different vein. And maybe, maybe I'm just going to be the comic relief yeah, every time no, we do I'm this, so, every time we talk about yeah, what we're doing. Yeah, bring it in. But bring. I recently watched Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure for the first time. The original movie, not the uh, recent remake, which I haven't, I haven't seen. I've now watched the original and the sequel from 1989 to 1991. The, the sequel was not great <laughs> to me, but I absolutely loved the first movie. I actually think it might be something we want to talk about at some point because I, I, I think it has a surprisingly interesting political undertone to be a very silly high school comedy. It's got a, it's got a really interesting story. And I think ultimately it, it shows a society based around the idea of being excellent to one another, which I think is pretty much what we're hoping for. What about you, John? I am watching The Expanse on Prime. I don't know if you guys have heard of The Expanse, but two of the developers of the show are Mark Fergus and Hawk Ospie, who are actually two of the screenwriters for Children of Men, the film that we've already commented on. Oh, wow. And The Expanse has many of the elements that we discussed that were in Children of Men. It's political. There's class issues, race issues, gender issues. I really like The Expanse and I'm, I'm enjoying it. And it's intense and there's a lot there to talk about. But unfortunately, it also has some of the shortcomings of Children of Men. And it has a cynical thread that runs through it. That is, it doesn't really imply that we can make the world a better place. It almost suggests that the status quo is as good as it gets. At times it's problematic, but it's, it's a very interesting show that i'd highly recommend the expanse oh i guess that's it all right so i think that's a podcast nice <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> you haven't heard you know, crowd rock in a long time when was the last time you heard japanese jazz did you know there was japanese jazz you probably thought it was japanese karaoke no there is japanese jazz and one of the hottest japanese jazz groups is called pistol jazz which is kind of what attracted me to, you know. I come across a name like that, I said, come on, I gotta listen to these guys' music. Pistol Jazz.